So we could call this um, a lesson in ancient history. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think it's an ancient history, but <laughs> still a lesson. Okay. <laughs> More I'm sorry, you, ha you have what? You have a degree in ancient history? I don't think it's an ancient history. I think it's modern history that you have. Oh, well, it's before you were born. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so, the first thing to say is, is that I started out as a child. Actually, even before that, I was a baby. I remember when it happened, in fact. You see, I was sitting in this great big warm hot tub, had all the videos and all of the chemicals and everything like that. Everything was easy. And all of a sudden, a kind of an earthquake happened. The bottom dropped out. The next thing I know, this guy, Dr. Uh, Young, had me up by the heels, spanking my butt. And I let out such a yell that I didn't stop yelling for until I was about 35 years old. <laughs> No, I didn't think it was that way. <laughs> well, that's how it all started. <laughs> so until 35, you were just a regular, regular civil. Um, no, actually, 35 was about the time that I ordained. Actually, it was after or about the time that I ordained. That's what I'm getting at, that I didn't actually stop yelling until after I arrived at Watsu and Mok. So what made you, what made you decide what was the, what was the primary um, an event maybe or uh, thinking? With, or? Without using the language at the time, yeah. The way that I would describe now the situation that I was in then was that I was literally on top of the world and miserable. Oh, I see. Because I wanted things that I didn't have. I wanted power and I wanted knowledge and I wanted a whole bunch of stuff. And uh, the on top of the world was is that I manipulated, because that's what you do with universes, is you manipulate them into giving you the piece of paper that you're there for. So I manipulated several universities into giving me several pieces of paper. And so I was on top of the world. Okay, and still quite miserable. But in fact, uh, two of the pieces of paper, the bachelor's and the master's degree in electrical engineering, which actually was more computer science. Um, and having the kind of jobs that only an expert in electronics and, and uh, engineering and computers can have on top mm -hmm. of the world. Okay. And also, basically, also at that time, I was uh, doing contracting and was uh, teaching at uh, Detroit Institute of Technology that had connections with MIT. And mm -hmm. so I was hobnobbing and brushing with, with people that I had huge amounts of respect for at the time. Mm -hmm. Including, by the way, one of the guys that was the envoy between the two universities happened to have that is a new job because he was the president of the University of South Carolina, where I got my bachelor's degree, and I knew him then. 
And I knew him then because I was working in a Lafayette radio electronics store. And mm-hmm. his son was one of our favorite customers. And he waltzes in with his dad and we have a techie conversation and he's president of the university. And not only that, but synchronicity in gear. And I meet him then as the liaison to MIT when I'm teaching at DIT. So that's one of the strange connections. I thought that I would mention that because these are the kinds of things that were interesting to me. Yeah, I I can relate to those. So also while I was teaching at DIT, I uh, fell into deep friendships with several of the uh, um, uh, psych professors the dean of the psych department and one of the students, uh, one of the uh, the other teachers. And in fact, we became kind of drinking buddies. But boy, were we deeply into psychology because they liked the fact that they had a, a you know, an engineer on the faculty that knew all about what they were all about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and with that connection, I wound up also teaching some business courses in the business school. So this was the kind of arrangement that I had. I was on top of the world. I'm a piece of cake. Okay. Uh, I had contracts, side contracts with Burroughs Corporation because Burroughs was a computer manufacturer and they were located in Detroit. So naturally they're going to be working with the faculty of yeah. the universities. And so there we go and I get contracts and that kind of stuff. But meanwhile, the love of my life about that time are actually even before then, that I had gotten quite a lot of psychology education, starting when I was in uh, graduate school. Um, a doctor gave me a book, I'm Okay, You're Okay, by Eric Byrne. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that immediately turned my mind upside down from electronics and engineering and all of that kind of stuff, which was my livelihood and profession. And I got deeply involved into psychology. So fast forward several years, I'm in uh, Michigan, in Ann Arbor, uh, Michigan. And there is one of, in those days, the hotbed of psychology. That was it. That was the its cadets. Mm-hmm. And they had a local psychiatric un- uh, situation. This, uh, in fact, it's world famous, Ypsilanti State Hospital. Was right there in Ann Arbor, and so uh, I was involved with Ypsilanti State Hospital. And by the way, when I was at University of South Carolina studying music, years before that, I was a psychiatric aide at the state hospital in South Carolina. So mm-hmm. here's all of these psychology connections with working with mentally ill and and all of that kind of stuff, and that puts it together then for me to get interested because. Basically, I'd gone about as far as I could go in psychology. Mm-hmm, and it yeah. wasn't what I, and I still didn't have the answers to my questions. It was only much later than I figured out that the reason I wasn't getting the answers to the questions because I was asking the wrong questions. So which questions were you asking back then? Uh, why is life such a drag? Who the hell am I? What the hell's going on here? What's the meaning of all of this? Where's that magic potion that they told me about in church? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And all of that kind of stuff, okay? And so uh, in that investigation in and around Detroit and and Ann Arbor, I ran across 
a, a coven of witches. Some uh, Native American medicine men. <laughs> I mean, I was really out there <laughs> all over the place looking for things. And one of the things that I ran across was an actual ashram that had been founded by, uh, by uh, uh, Swami Muktananda, who was headquartered in Ganeshpuri, India. Mm-hmm. So fast forward through all of that time when I was a professor, because part of the times I was professor, I was also the uh, part, part-time in India already at Muktananda's ashram, but I went tra- sort of traveling. Uh, and what I was doing was I went looking for all the gurus in India. And so I met a lot of people. I spent about three months in Pune with Rajneesh. So I, a lot of that stuff rubbed off, but I'm glad to say that much of it I've gotten wiped off finally. <laughs> um. And Sachi Sai Baba and uh, 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 what was her name? Mother in Pondicherry and uh, uh, Ama in uh, Goa and all over the place, you know, Rishikesh and uh, Dhamma Salah and uh, Mysore all over India looking for uh, every big name. But slowly it began to dawn on me what was going on. And that's when I wound up with Gawanka in uh, Igatpuri, which is in Maharashtra state. Mm-hmm. And what began to dawn on me was a lady on the train on the way to Bangalore. And we got into a conversation. And as we got to Bangalore after our talk, she invited me to her home. And while we were there, she dug out some old newspapers, old, old newspapers, been years old. And the newspapers was an entire display, full display, page after page, big photos and all of that, a very detailed information of how Sachi Sai Baba, one of the most famous magicians and uh, guys in India, both Mm -hmm. in India and in the whole world, this whole expose is how he did his magic, done with hidden cameras and all kinds of stuff, and it was quite an expose. Now there's the same kind of uh, issue on YouTube, but when I was sitting in that lady's house, that woke me up because I recognized for sure that if the best known worldwide magicians who have mm-hmm. millions of followers who are in awe of his uh, most famous trick is actually holy ash. And if he's a charlatan, maybe all of it is charlatanism. And that was a hard realization. I mean, that was a hard thump. Because <laughs> I, as you can tell, had been putting quite a lot of time and effort to that issue. And part of the issue also was that was that when I was a really little kid, My mom was a devout Southern Baptist. Mm -hmm. And we Mm -hmm. went to that church every time the door was cracked open. Wow. About six times a week or so. And not only that, but in the communities various that I lived in, a lot of the people in that town were just like that, that the church Mm -hmm. was our home. And I remember like RAs on Monday night and choir practice on Thursday night and prayer meeting on Wednesday night and uh, Sunday night service and all that. There were very few nights uh, left in the week to do anything. 
Wow. And so um, the, the interesting story is, is that one time I got really angry at my mom when I was about three years old because I really wanted to go home and she couldn't go home because she was the nurture worker. And she had to wait until mommies and daddies in church stop their talking and gathering and whatnot and come get their brats so I can go home. And that's when I kind of made the decision, and it was a tough road for me to hold, but it was that my mom cared more about the church than she did about me. Now, that was an ignorant decision for a three-year-old, but it was a really, really big decision. Well. And then later, she proved it to me. Yeah. But the, uh, but anyway, this, uh, <laughs> this idea about a, a really good memory and all of that, that's something that I kind of developed to remember things, and so it wasn't anything remarkable, but I've been able to remember many things. So fast forward about a year when I'm, when I'm a four-year-old, my dad lands a gig at the church because he's got some technical expertise with uh, tape recorders, and uh, we used three telephone lines for the circuitry so that the preacher could give a live broadcast on the town's radio. Mm -hmm. And so this is what my dad did, and he had a little room beside uh, the sanctuary. And so I would go with him, and he would go in there and set up all the equipment, making the dials and all of that, and then turn the equipment on, and then the church service would start. And he and I would go to the bar. <laughs> <laughs> because bars, I mean, he'd get beer and I'd get a Coca-Cola, and this was a magazine stand or a newsstand, and so I would look at, um, <clears throat> I remember especially, it was Little Lulu, but also some Donald Duck comic books. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what I would do on Sunday morning. So this was the kind of thing, idea that I had about church. And so uh, as my family moved around, when my grandfather died when I was six years old, my family mm -hmm. moved around. Mostly, my mom wanted to come back to North Carolina because that's where her home was. And in fact, I did visit North Carolina because we came on the train. Mm -hmm. Okay. We came on the train and then my grandmother came back with us on the train and she stayed there while my mom had uh, uh, my sister. Mm -hmm. And I was still uh, not quite yet four years old. I was still three years old at the time. And boy, do I remember my grandmother. But anyway, I remember a whole lot about that part, too. But the main part that I'm getting at is, is that I began to have a, um, an interesting relationship with this being dragged to church mm -hmm. when I didn't like the church in the first places. And so I started to argue with them, and I wound up being kind of a religious philosopher that was anti-Christian in the most hotbed of southern town Christian places. Yeah, and you didn't have anyone to tell you. You just had it. I had to figure all of this stuff out by myself. But that still left that lingering part because actually I had uh, read uh, books like uh, The Light of Asia by Christmas Humphreys, which was a basic Buddhism introduction in the West. That was book written in 1940 or something, but that and other things I had in school in the early 1960s. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I began to experiment then with meditation. And the first meditation I remember that I was in the choir in the church 
not interested in anything that was going on in the service at all. But instead, I was in this meditative state of breathing in God. And I worked myself up into such a state of bliss. And then I said, well, I can do that next week. And the next time I tried it, I couldn't do it. But then I kept trying and trying. I got it again. And so I started to develop that just from the Christianity. But in so with that, all I ever got was, uh, let us say, manufactured fairy tales that is Christianity. They have a Jesus that has a lot of good information, mm-hmm. but the Jesus that Christianity knows in the United States is a manufactured fairy tale. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Well, it took me a long time to figure that out while I was in high school, arguing with preachers about it and pointing out verses in the Bible and that kind of stuff. So naturally, when I got in college, my foreign language is going to be ancient Greek. so i really got into that bible kind of stuff as well as all of the is the magic real or not where is the magic in all of this story okay so that's in fact what was the motivating factor then behind me getting into the ashram at muktananda's which was then my doorway to india didn't take me long to get a uh, plane ticket to india When was your first uh, trip to India then? 1975, I believe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That was when all the Indian stuff started. So you've you've been looking in the U.S. for for answers, then outside of the U.S. in India and still not getting closer. No, but I was also getting a lot of meditation experience, a lot of practice, a lot of sitting up. Especially when I got to Goenka, I was really ready for Goenka, but I could see that most people, when they got to Goenka, weren't ready at all, and he knows that, so he gives them a bit of, a, let us say, a Buddhist beginner's version of boot camp slash torture chamber. Mm-hmm. Oh. And most it, most people are not ready for that. Mm. Uh, uh, with a regimen, the boot camp is a very, very strong regimen. You got to go do this. You got to do that. Uh, and the uh, torture chamber is the um, one hour long sitting of not opening your eyes, not opening your hands and just sitting there and grinning and bearing it. If you've got to grin at all, just don't move. That's their best instructions they could come up with. Did they apply any force to remind you to sit still like any kind of like I think in Zen they practice or something. No, kind of- I would. I would. I no. I don't think that the Goenka folks do that, but they certainly do get resistant when you try to walk out of their place and before oh. it's over. Oh, I see. Okay. But in fact, that's one of the uh, the problems is, is that they get very attached because if you, you can imagine that people are there as a um, a volunteer. Yeah. And people are walking out. And then the next thought is walking out on me mm-hmm. <laughs> when it's not me at all <laughs> that they're walking out on. I've been just standing at the back of the room while they were walking out, but they walked past me. Therefore, I've got to stop them from going because if they leave, I'll feel bad. And so there's a lot of that situation in these retreats that the volunteers will really hike up the uh, juice on getting people to stay. 
mm-hmm. to the end of the retreat. Wow. Mm-hmm. So that's that's uh, uh, part of the horror stories that you'll hear about various retreats and how they're run and whatnot. In fact, the first the worst example of that was in Jaipur several years ago when the guy really wanted out. He wanted to, uh, his passport. He had everything else. But they wouldn't give him his passport. Wow. And he got violent with them and they called the police. And the best thing for him to have done is, is to go to the police in the first place and say, hey, these people got my passport. Mm-hmm. Wow. He, he was in no state to do that. Obviously, the retreat that he left early didn't work for him because <laughs> mm-hmm. he proved it. He got arrested instead. <laughs> Who? Um... <laughs> I didn't know that happens on retreats, <laughs> but. Well, there's all kinds of things when uh, too many retreats are given in too many places by people who really don't know what they're doing, yeah. as well as the retreat setting itself has a lot of flaws. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But one of the ways that I was getting over the flaw, in fact, was because I actually lived at Igatpuri with Goenka, where he was there a lot. He also lived mostly in in, uh, uh, Mm -hmm. Bangkok. But in the West, people come from their ordinary houses, go to the retreat, suffer through the retreat, and then they go home and they don't have any support or anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's what... There's there's no sangha with those retreats. That's the problem. They don't have any supports or friends or anything. And that's so important in the practice of Buddhism. Mm-hmm. That whole point about Sangha, but I didn't even learn about that until I got to Watsu and Mok. That was where I learned Sangha, which is the third of the Triple Gem. Mm-hmm. Here I am chasing after the Buddha, picking up the Dhamma along the way, but not having a clue about Sangha. Yeah, I haven't known about Sangha until now it's still a little mysterious to me but i understand the meaning behind it it's mm-hmm. you do understand all... the meaning behind it i would say it's easy you can put it in quotations but the easy definition is is guilt by association guilt by association yeah yeah okay so if you're going to be guilty of being a noble then you associate with nobles mm-hmm if you're going to be guilty of a drunk, then go associate with drunks. Mm-hmm. 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 It works like that. Oh. That's what a bachelor party is all about, is the guys to get the guy drunk and say goodbye to him because he's not going to be friends with them anymore. They will drift apart. Married men don't associate with bachelors. Married men associate with married men. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, veterans associate with veterans. I mean, this is just what Sangha is all about. And so we're talking about something, human nature, Mm -hmm. that the Buddha uses, but he turns it into a skill. A skill of... A skill. Sangha is a skill to be developed. Oh, The feeling of being in a community, the feeling of being strong through association. Huh. Like, the feeling that... of friendship and having friends and being friendly, being able to really trust your world, that's Sangha. 
Mm-hmm. Um, now, the trust issue is definitely like <laughs> is definitely an issue. <laughs> I'm sorry. What what's the, an issue? The trust portion of it is definitely an issue because, well, for example, the people, for example, that are I. What do I want to say? I guess right now I associate with I've known for a long time throughout my life. And there you can calculate on fingers. You can count on fingers how many there are now with you with talking to you. It's opening up to completely different amount. Yeah, I would I would actually have to say that if I were going to count my friends on the fingers, I'd have to be a centipede. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and sometimes friends come and go. The going part's more difficult. Yeah, it's true. And I do adore adore my friends. <laughs> well, if you're if you're around friends and the friends are noble, then you're going to be like them. It's almost like that we either help each other up or we help each other down. Yeah. And so a song is when we're interested in helping each other up so that everybody can be happy, friendly. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that I have heard many times is people will say that, well, I've been reading a book and I've been online, but I really don't know what to, uh, to do. And most important, I don't know anyone who is actually practicing. And mm-hmm. there you go. That's it. You need Sangha. Mm-hmm. But is that supposed to be more organic? Like, I feel like with online talking is uh, a little complicated because you don't have that. Like with the <laughs> amount of people that that we have calls with for example i don't have personal connection yet and i feel uh, i feel like i'm um you know it's not it's hard for me to open up and not think what they're gonna think of me if i say so or like all this all this all this background noise is so much louder and it's so much more uncomfortable I guess. Exactly. In other words, it's noisy in the bars that you frequent. Yeah. Okay. And that you need more noble company. Yeah. So how how do I do that? (laughs) And unfortunately, you're not going to find that. You're just going to find a Buddhist bar on Reddit. Is that what it is? (laughs) Right. It's but a Buddhist colored bar, but it, it, they say they say all the same mental uh, degeneracy that all the other bars sell. Well, exactly. So I stopped looking and just uh, mostly exploring. Well, you it. could say I did the same thing, but I did a deeper investigation than most people do. That's one of the reasons why I appreciate the Buddha so much is that he tried what he tried that was recommended and available to him and went to the absolute limits of it. 
Mm -hmm. That's almost required of each one of us. You've got to go do something deep enough, put enough skin in the game so that you really understand that that don't work. And then you go do something else and you go as deep as you can do it to recognize that that don't work. And then you begin to figure out why those don't work and you begin to how to put things together. And someday you come across something and you know absolutely this does work. And now you found what you were looking for. And that's what you'll find on Reddit is a whole lot of people still out looking. But on Reddit? That's no skin in the game. Yeah. Yeah, there's no plane tickets. There's no real ashrams, no real watch. That's one of the things that that I would highly recommend is for Westerners to stop reading books and chatting with other ordinary people about Buddhism here and there and go meet some people who've really got some skin in the game. Go meet some monks. How many there are in Russia, I don't know, but I uh, do know that there's 350 watts in the United States, but they're all closed right now because of COVID. Yeah, well, I was um, I was living in Myanmar for a year and a half, and I did get to encounter quite a few monks, but my problem was I couldn't understand them because they didn't speak English. Most and you didn't them. live with them either. You stayed in a hotel and visited the Wat. Exactly. I didn't I didn't stay in the monastery. I was not allowed to. I'm as a <laughs> don't you know I know that. <laughs> yeah. However, there were places for you to have gone to in Myanmar where women stay. There is actually monasteries in Myanmar and in Thailand, women only. One of the big ones in Ayutthaya at one time had 400 nuns there. Mm. And the uh, the abbot of that monastery, uh, it's a long story, but she became one of the bhikkhunis, mm-hmm. which threw a lot of uh, emotional turmoil into all the chauvinists in Thailand. Okay. And every man is a chauvinist because we're trained to be that in our society. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, so we got, wait, 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 so we got into. Anyway, back Uh back to Burma. We can get back to the story of India. In the sense of all of that traveling around, I finally ran across uh, Gawanka. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's go back to India. But but by then I was ready to finish with the Hindu magical part of it and actually get into the real reasons for the practice of sitting or what we called in those days meditation. A lot of people still use that that, that word, but I don't I don't have anything to do with it anymore after having gone about as deep as needed to go into that to find out that that's not where I need to go. Wow. Okay. 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 Yeah, keep going. Yeah. So altogether about three years with Goenka. Altogether mm-hmm. more than 30 retreats, 30 10-day retreats. That's almost a full year in retreat out of three. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Being either a volunteer or just, just sitting, just sitting and doing the 
Anapana for three days and then the uh, body scan and all of that they're doing. Now, this actually develops quite a lot of skills. And I've already developed a huge amount of skills. So when I'd gotten finally to Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, and that's a really interesting story, is, is that I left Goenka because I recognized that they're missing something here. But at least now I'm looking in the right direction because I was looking in all the wrong places, but I looked all over India for it. But India is supposed to be the most religious country in the world. Mm -hmm. And all I found was one charlatan after another, after another, and after another. And that's just what I could came to understand about Gawain, because he was not a charlatan. He was on to something. But he was missing something, too, and I wanted the rest of the pie. <laughs> okay. Mm -hmm. And so I wound up then in Bodh Gaya, which is the birthplace of, uh, not the birthplace, but birthplace of the enlightened Buddha, as opposed to Lampini, which was the birthplace of Siddhartha. Mm -hmm. And so I was hanging out there, actually in the Taiwat, as a guest. And there I met Christopher Titnus and was in a group with him. Uh, and that it was interesting that he was teaching at this particular place, it was him. Uh, and I'll get to that connection later, but I also met a Thai monk there who spoke enough English that after a few conversations, one of the things that happened was is that he actually took a book away from me. I was holding a book, talking about the book, and he took it away from me. And he kind of tossed it onto what we used as a bed. Didn't throw it on the floor, but he just like that. And that book that he did was one of the most sacred books of all. And so I knew that he was take, making a point, that that gesture that he made was making a huge point. That he didn't just say, oh, never mind that book. He actually took it out of my hand and threw it on the, on the chair mm -hmm. or on the uh -huh. bed. The name of the book was the Vasudhimaga. Yeah, I've never heard about it. Okay, Vasudhi is a uh, book that was written in about the uh, 500 AD era by a monk named Bhikkhu Buddha Gosa. And he did this in Sri Lanka, though he was a Brahmin from the area that I was living in at the time. But he visited Sri Lanka in order to gather up all the material and to publish the commentaries. He had a whole group of people working with him. And he also wrote this book called the Vasudhimaga that now is highly cherished all over Theravadan Buddhism, Sri Lanka and uh, Burma, most especially. Mm -hmm. But in Thailand, they have a little bit different view of it, depending on point where, that it's either just another book to put on the shelf into something we can use for firewood. Okay, interesting. Okay. So useless. All right, and so this this book actually is a book of magic. But it's a, uh, more than a thousand years or about a thousand years after the time of the Buddha, but it is highly respected in all of the Buddhism in Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm. With a few pockets of discernment. <laughs> and I and so this there's, there's very many stories about this month that are worth telling, 
but the basic point is is that he was from Wat Chulapatan in Bangkok, which is the, one of the largest temples in, in Bangkok or in, in Thailand, maybe even in the world with several thousand monks, in fact. Mm -hmm. uh, to where I think the big one in Las, uh, Lhasa had uh, 600 or so, which was quite a crowd. But Wat Chulapatan, even when I was there, had 2,000 monks. Mm -hmm. And it was huge, but it was in actually in downtown Bangkok, or not actually downtown, it was in Nornterbury, which is one of the suburbs of Bangkok. And this uh, big monastery, the head abbot of the monastery, Achan uh, Panyananda, was a good buddy of Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. Mm -hmm. And so that's why this monk was so into Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, and he told me all about Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa when I was in Bodh Gaya. So I immediately hop on a plane and go to Burma instead. <laughs> okay, how does it end up? <laughs> well, you see, Burma is where Gawanka came from, and Burma is where Mahasi and all of that stuff is. Mm -hmm. But due to the issues in that particular time, which was 1983, visas were nothing. But I did hook up with Panyananda, this was right after Mahasi Saradal had died. Mm -hmm. And so the guy who was taking over it was Achan Panyananda, and I met up with him and eventually went and did retreats when he would come out of Burma to go to Malaysia. I came down from Wat Suan Mok, which is a later part of the story. Meanwhile, after I left Burma, I left uh, to come to Thailand. By then, completely out of cash, no money. So I decided to buy a bicycle and ride the bicycle to Wat Suan Mok. Mm -hmm. And that took six weeks. And on the way, I spent each night in a different Wat. Well, there's, on, okay, there were so many Wats on the way. Wow. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, it's like uh, a Christian saying in the southern United States, I'm traveling across from Texas to um, um, Florida, mm -hmm. and every night I slept at a, at a church. Nobody would have anything to say about that because there's going to be a church every time you put your bike down. <laughs> wow, okay. So six weeks of, of talking and meeting new people every, every mm -hmm. night. Uh huh, and and staying with monks and talking and learning a little bit of Thai and uh, getting on the bicycle and traveling some more. Finally, mm -hmm. arriving at Wat Suan Mok, there is Achan Po standing at the gate, waiting for me, saying, "Where have you been? I've been waiting for you." That's the first thing he said. I remember specifically. That's what he said. And he greeted me like I was a prodigal son or something. He was actually worried about me. Where had I been? Well, yeah, it, six weeks. And, 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 and that is about the best expression of absolute dead-on, spot-on, clairvoyant magic that I know of. Uh-huh. Okay, until I found out three years later that he was actually riding in a truck. He had gone to uh, to Chumpon and he saw me riding on the bicycle down this dirt path that was the major highway that is now. Mm -hmm. And he mused the only place I could possibly be going <laughs> was to watch someone <laughs> Wow, well, and he, he didn't stop. <laughs> he didn't ask. 
Well, he wasn't. I mean, he was just riding in a truck and um, there we go, you know. So, um, and there I was pedaling down. And so when I got to Wat Soi Mok, I get this amazing greeting from Achan Po. And mm-hmm. I felt immediately that I was at home and I never lost that. I always, whenever I think of Wat Soi Mok, I think about going home. And people mm-hmm. tell me all about the changes that have happened and all of this, that, and what's going on there now. And the fact that now Achan Po is on Kosamui, closer by. And Bhikkhu Benadas has been dead now for nearly 30 years. That's still mommy and daddy. That's still home. Oh, wow. And so that was in 1983. And uh, late in 1984, in fact, it was December 1984, was the ordination and I had already been teaching there and doing retreats with students under the care and guidance of Bhikkhu Buddhadasa Nachan Po. And so in the at the ordination, the entire student body of that retreat plus a whole lot of Thai people. Thai people really love to go to an ordination. And mm-hmm. so I've got photos of a huge ordination. Must have been a hundred people or more there. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, so that's that's basically the story of how uh, all of that happened. Mm-hmm. And that's what got it started. And it's been a, a long, interesting uh, set of one now after another until up to right now. <laughs> this one. So right now, do you feel accomplished now that you're not chasing anything? Like. Let us put it this way. I don't have any doubts or longings that I'm safe and comfortable and secure. Mm-hmm. Don't need anything now. Like you are just, you're comfortable where you are. There is like a sense of peace. and Yes. And by the way, I got really comfortable with it where I am without ever figuring out who I am. Okay, so that's not a question, right? That's <laughs> not one of the, that was one of the wrong questions in the beginning was who am I? Because that question who am I itself has ramifications of who am I to fit into and yeah. what is it that I am fitting into? What is this all about? What's the what? meaning of life? The answer is life does, is, it doesn't have a meaning and it doesn't need to have a meaning. All it is is a dance. Please come join us. Don't sit on the sideline trying to figure out why people are dancing. Just get up and dance. It's <laughs> <laughs> just such a simple and lovely explanation. Oh wow! Well, yeah, makes it's it's <laughs> great. <laughs> and now what? Now what? Well, you just what dance. Do you mean? <laughs> yeah, like, I'm what? not now. Nothing. That's the whole point. That the end of Sunyata is there's nothing left. Yeah, there's nothing. No place to go. Nothing to do. Just sit and enjoy life. Thank you for making my life a pleasure, Anna. <laughs> but it would have been pleasurable without you. <laughs> well, that's, 
um, I feel like you just have so much patience with all of us here. Uh, me, uh, me personally, because I call you in the like. I don't have any patience at all. None. I have no patience. I'm not a doctor. No. No. Well. I know that there's a prayer, by the way, about patience. Oh Lord, please give me patience right bloody now. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's patience for you. <laughs> but, okay, Damarada, do you think you can find where you're comfortable within the society or actually? I would say it's a one-two punch. Mm-hmm. Okay, the first one is, is to get the mind cleaned out of emotions. So that we're no longer emotionally reacting to the world and we can see it exactly the way that it is. And once we do that, now we can make wise choices about how we're going to deal with the world. And in some cases, that means just get up out of that bar and go take a walk. Mm -hmm. Take a walk in the woods somewhere far away. Out. <laughs> Exit stage left of this stage. Or more precisely, come sit in the audience and enjoy the show. Yeah. Um, I've been handling some, I guess, anxiety. And I don't even recognize that it's an anxiety until I talk about it, I guess. Well, until you look at it. Yeah. And uh, and it's hard to talk about it without looking at it. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly the point. And uh, so <laughs> right now, you being there makes me feel like, why am I even trying anything here? Why don't I just give everything up as, as it is? Well, that's because you're thinking of it in the sense of long term. You're thinking of it in the sense of... Uh, uh, if I did this, then later I could have that. When in fact, the entire teachings of the Buddha is, well, why don't you at least feel good right now and get used to feeling good? Yeah, and I've, I... You don't have to worry about what's going to happen when somebody knocks on your door. You only have to worry about, can you feel good right now? Can you sit here with me and enjoy this moment without any expectations of it ever getting any better than this? But you can have the expectation is you can do this again. If you can do it one time, if you can feel good now, you can feel good later. Uh, okay, yeah. So, um, like, mentally, yes, this is where what's written there. And then, and then there is a heartbeat, there is heartburn, there's, like, everything in me is on fire. And then I, and I, I talk myself into calming down, and it doesn't work. It's, it, I, I, how automatically, like, it just goes straight into... Well, part of it has to do with taking a deep breath. And I haven't seen you do that yet while you've been talking about... Oh, no, I, right <laughs> I've been breathing with you. <sighs> Let me show you again, new demonstration. <sighs> what a relief it is. And just breathe out all of that stuff. Now that you know that you've got it, let go of it. 
you're at least halfway there. You've got the knowledge part. If you can see oh, it, yeah. you can drop it. But what most people do is that they see it and then they have a pity party. Oh, poor me. Look, I'm so anxious and upright. <laughs> and when instead you can, <gasps> goodbye. <laughs> yeah, seriously, goodbye. <laughs> yeah, goodbye. Get out of the bar. Walk out of your anxiety right then and there. Get up and walk out. What is stopping me? Never mind what's stopping you. Take a deep breath instead and enjoy this one. If there's anything that's stopping you, it's short memory. We're talking about taking a deep breath and all of a sudden you're grinding on again about why can't I do this all the time? The answer to that is, well, at least take another deep breath. Get used to doing this instead of talking yourself about you can't do it. And then physically, my the, the throat restricts. And the back of the throat just squeezes. With fear, right? Yeah, I get Is that what it is? So recognize that fear and let that relax too. You know it, you can see it, and you are only subject to it when you allow it to be in charge. Yeah. That's why we, and this is built right into the English language with, with words like, I am afraid, or I am sad, or my throat tenses up. Yeah. Okay, so it's built right into the language, but in fact, the I am angry is wrong, because I am not angry, but I can see anger in the body. Correct. Yeah. I, I am not the anger. You are not the tight throat. So the whole point about who am I is is answer is asked backwards. The better question is, what am I not? Because I'm not the body. I'm not the feelings. I'm not the mind. I'm not any of those things because they're all temporary. But wait a minute. So am I, because the I comes up and down. In fact, the I is nothing but a concept. And we is bring it in almost always as the, uh, the butt of every harmful joke that we tell ourselves. Like, mm -hmm. I am anxious. Mm -hmm. The I is the butt of the joke because you're not anxious at all. You're just not breathing well. Yeah. And under that anxiety is fear. Yeah, it's not even so. It, That's it, why the throat gets tight, that you're expressing, I can see fear, which means that you're not the fear. Yeah. Yeah, I keep breathing. <laughs> I feel like I need to concentrate more. Actually, I, in that regard, I would say, no, it's not a matter of concentration. It's a matter of remembering to do it. That's the skill that we're developing is to remember to be here now, to be in this present moment. Take a deep breath, enjoy this right now and not worrying about trying to get rid of anxiety. 
Yeah, and instead I want to go jump into like working out or something, you know, or shower or like something more physical. You feel like you want to go and do something, which which makes a lot of sense. And the reason that it does is because while you're showering, you're not thinking about your anxiety. But as soon as you towel off, you feel anxious again. Correct. Yeah, exactly. So that's a little band-aid. yeah, it's only a Band-Aid, if it that much. It's almost more like a magical... <laughs> because while we're... Uh, I use that as an example, that the um, uh, the old peasant way back when was living in a hovel, and there he is uh, sleeping or laying on the floor at night, and he, all of a sudden he feels really anxious. And so he says, I know what? And so he gets up and he goes out to repair the wall. Because the wall is kind of damaged and the wolves might jump in or the cheap get out or whatever. And so he spends several hours picking up rocks in the dark and putting it on the wall. And he goes back down and lays down in his hovel. And the anxiety comes back. In fact, it never left. He just wasn't paying attention to the anxiety. And people do that a lot. That's what happens. And guess what? While you're breathing, you're not paying attention to the anxiety. So isn't that also some sort of band-aid? <laughs> Except that building a wall doesn't help anxiety and getting rid of the chemicals of anxiety by breathing out does. This is not a magic trick now. This is real. We're working with the way that the body works. We're building skills about how to manipulate the body into relaxing and feeling good. We do it with the breath. Now, is that only with the breath or how about tears and like any kind of like expression like that yelling? I don't know, something that comes out of you or just breathing. Well, it, depend, it depends upon whether the yelling is harsh or whether it's joyful. <laughs> it's something. Hmm. And it's, sometimes it's hard to tell the two because they're mixed together. And that, in fact, the mix together is kind of what we mean by relief. Well, exactly. It's relief. It's more relief. So crying is relief. And it's got both the positive and negative built right into it. But it's powerful. And it's a release. The relief is also a release. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which, in, in a way, is like the flow of letting the old, ugly, uh, problematic, bad feelings out and feeling relief from that which is also now a letting in of the new good feelings i can actually find it with this relief begin to feel good mm-hmm. and so that that out breath that sigh is actually a sigh of relief to let oh. go so it's also positive and negative at the same time the sigh of relief Mm-hmm. And it's the letting go of all of the pollution that you talked yourself into. I mean, you don't feel anxious until you give yourself anxious thoughts. Yeah, but they yeah. work together that way. And then when you feel anxious, then you begin to have even more anxious thoughts until you build yourself up to it. And all of a sudden you realize, I can't handle this anymore. And that's when depression sets in. That all, They've figured it out now that depression actually is the result of too much anxiety. They, they are the same thing, in fact. Oh, absolutely, yeah. It's like a snowball effect of uh, one little thing to another. And 
Yeah. And so now, relaxing from time to time is going to start making a different set of neural pathways. <sighs> and repeating it over and over again. That's the way to go. This is repetition. To start building up that sati to remember to be here now, to take a deep breath and to be in the present moment. I feel lightheaded. Great. Absolutely it's... wonderful. Allow yourself to feel lightheaded. <laughs> it's a bit marvelous because that's a whole lot better than feeling anxious now, isn't it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Repeat that, please. I didn't quite hear you. <laughs> it's almost I'm, I'm, I'm losing the grips with the reality. Like, my words don't sound like words, and my head is literally empty. Now, do you do you still teach? Do you still have retreats? Do you still teach not meditation but sitting, or is that what you usually is Skype? What you primarily do now? Actually, the practice of Anapanasati can be practiced anywhere, anytime. All we have to do is to remember to do it. But it is a very, very good idea to get off into seclusion so that we could do this to actually practice doing it over and over again to begin to build it up as a skill before we try to bring it back into the world. So yeah. where you're sitting right now is good enough for you to practice for 10, 15 or 20 minutes. And what are you going to practice? Taking long, deep breaths and relaxing and giving yourself nice, wholesome thoughts about how wonderful it is for the next 15 minutes. I don't have to do anything that anybody tells me, especially the part of me up here that goes around telling me to do things. I don't mm -hmm. have to do any of that. I can sit here and just relax instead. No place to go. Nothing to do. And the spring comes and the grass grows all by itself. <sighs> And so these are very wholesome kind of thoughts to have. And allow yourself just to relax. And when anxiety comes up, it's only coming up because you're having quick momentary thoughts that giving you anxiety. A really strange example would be even just one mind moment, a tenth of a second of an image of a refrigerator will give some people, some people anxiety. Now, uh, this today is so different from yesterday. Yesterday, I was literally somewhere not in this world i was so i had my body was different like my i was listening to some music and i felt it and it was just going like it was playing with my psyche it was so so high in terms of i don't know frequency or some kind of like would you it, use the words like that your mind was racing my my mind was not racing it was it was wonderful. It was blissful. I would say I was. I was. Okay, so, so I wasn't resting. It, 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 okay, because I right now. Okay, I did. So now you're using the word blissful that you feel really uh, good. Yeah, and and feeling like this right now is completely different. And I don't, and I'm trying to see where the switch was. And oh, that means you you expected things to be the same. 
Yeah, I guess. That's the primary teaching of the Buddha is everything changes. Everything is constantly motion. That in fact, bliss is one kind of bliss now and next time is different bliss. Sometimes it's green, sometimes it's blue. Sometimes you like it, sometimes you're blue. Yeah, I guess I'm trying Sometimes you feel like a nut, sometimes you don't. Things keep changing all the time. The question is, is can you enjoy the ride? Can you enjoy this show called life? Or do you want your money back? When all you have to do is just enjoy the show. Oh, no, it sounds so simple. Oh, jeez. <laughs> it's that simple. Wow, what a relief. Yeah, and I feel like I need your help to, to be there. Like, why? <laughs> well, that's my job is to give you that spark. If you can see that I can feel relieved and happy and comfortable and on top of my own world, then you can, that gives you a little bit of confidence that you can do it too, because I know you can. You even have my permission to do it. Yeah. <laughs> to feel the best you could actually feel, to begin to take over your feelings and to feel the way that you want to feel. And to feel really good about doing that, too. Yeah, and I don't want to be relying on you for that. That's what makes me... Does a fire that's, that's let us say you've got a campfire on, uh, in this area and another campfire over there. We can't, we started the campfire over there first, but we bought a stick and we brought it over and we set this campfire on fire. Does that mean now that this campfire is reliant upon that one, that if that goes out, this one is not alive? Where's the fire here? This is an old Buddhist classical question. Is you've got two candles and you give the flame to another one, who does the flame belong to? Whose flame is it? Is it the same flame or is it a different flame? And all of those questions are absurd. They're ridiculous. That's true. Yeah, you're not going to rely upon me. You never have. You never will. You're only going to be able to rely upon your own mind. But it's a concept almost a delusional concept to rely upon someone else because you got into the habit of doing that when you were young, tender infant. When we're children, we rely. When we grow up, we become lions. Mm -hmm. And that's what we've got to do here is we got to put away some of these childish things and get on top of our world. And we do that one breath at a time, one moment at a time. Instead of thinking, oh, I've got to do it all the time. No, you just got to do it right now. Just right now. You can do it right now. You can feel really good right now. <sighs> feel really good right now. Oof. Yeah. Wow. It's like tricking myself into it. Well, when you're tricking yourself into doing, basically what we're actually saying is, is that we're changing the, the critical mind, the parent mind, the storage area, what uh, Freud called the superego, 
what many psychologists call the old tapes in quotation. Memories about how things should be. And often we have to in order to practice correctly, we have to cross some of those boundaries. That in fact, there may be a boundary in there that says that you're not supposed to feel good. You don't deserve it yet. It's very common in Eastern Europe, but it's actually common all over the place. But how how dare you think you deserve the very best? When you don't deserve anything because you haven't earned it yet. You got to work hard. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, guess what? You have my permission to feel the very best right now. You do not have to do anything for anybody, solve any puzzles or do any jobs. Just take a breath and allow yourself to feel good. You don't have to pay the piper or anyone. You're the boss here. Yeah, it feels much better. <laughs> and immediately I have a question. Do I call you now every time I need a permission to feel good? <laughs> that sounds so ridiculous. Actually, this is the point when the questions become irrelevant. The questions are not relevant. In fact, the questions themselves are a form of hindrance. All questions come from doubt. And all you need to do is to trust that you could do this. You could just take a deep breath and chill out. By the way, chilling out, uh, you, this, the article that you sent about Chinese millennials, yeah, that's funny. <laughs> I got a big kick out of that. That even in China, they're beginning to rebel. I like it. I like it that it's um, they're not shaming themselves for not wanting something. Yeah. And they just want to chill. So pick that up too. Yeah, you can just chill. You don't owe anybody anything. All your debts are paid. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. Or at least you got an extension to your mortgage and you can put it off into the future. Well, no, no, it's uh, like in terms of fi finances, especially now, if I don't feel. But any... you don't have to do your finances right now, so you can push that stuff away and say later, forget about it right now. You could push that stuff out of the mind and put this present moment in the mind. Oh, doesn't that feel right now? I don't even have to pay those debts right now. I could just sit here and enjoy the moment. Let's forget about that stuff right now and start thinking about how marvelous this present moment is. It is marvelous. Now, when is your next retreat? <laughs> yeah, you only pay the bills, actually pay the bills once a month, each one. <laughs> but how many times do you pay that bill in your mind? <laughs> this is what we mean by worry, is paying bills over and over and over again without actually paying the bill. 
we live in a dream world. Time to come out of our dream world and be here now. And right here and now, your checkbook is not in front of you. So because you're not going to do the checks right now anyway, why think about them right now anyway? You'll get around to it. And basically, if you work correctly, when you get around to it, you'll enjoy it because you already got yourself into feeling good. Yeah, <laughs> enjoy yeah. the uh, checkbook. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, go enjoy your checkbook. That's an art. But make <laughs> sure that you're in enjoyment first, because normally when you get into the checkbook, you really go into poor me pity party. No, it so now, goes up. Yeah, it's pretty actually, you get into the pity party before you do the checkbook. <laughs> no, it's a full blown like panic attack. Mm. Poor Anna. Yeah. Yeah, she's all worried, stenched up, excited, and she's not even paying her bills. But it's it it's all I know. I can pay the bill. I know I have enough money, and it's still a panic attack. Yes, I know. That's why I'm teasing you so. <laughs> That's why I keep teasing you so it's because the money is not the reason for the anxiety. But when you think of money, the anxiety comes up because you're wired like that. Yeah, but you can think of anything and get anxious. Or you can think of anything and say, oh, that's a piece of cake. But the important thing is, is that when you're thinking of money and get uptight and anxious, the right thing to do is say, well, don't think about money right now. And then you won't be uptight and anxious. <laughs> Cause and effect, you know. And then later we'll get down to the real anxiety, the pool that's below. But right now we've got to start cleaning out the surface of it. Here's an example of that. Imagine that there's a weed that's growing on the street or on the pavement. And you want to get rid of the weed, but you can't pull it up by its roots without tearing up the pavement. You don't want to tear up the pavement. But what we can do is that we can notice, we can watch from time to time. And when we see that weed put up a shoot, we go in and we cut the shoot off right at the surface. Whack. As soon as it comes up, we whack it off. After a while, the root gets without nourishment. It's not getting what it needs. It begins to wither away and die. And then guess what? The weed doesn't keep putting up shoots anymore. And it doesn't even matter whether there's an old weed in there or not. We don't have that shoot coming up. That's the way of, of thinking. A lot of people think that meditation is like taking a full, ugly, old tree up by the roots. And a much better way of doing it is just pick one leaf at a time. You keep picking one leaf at a time. When you pick all the leaves off of it, tree's going to die naturally. And you don't have much work to do. In fact, it's a joy just picking leaves. Easy peasy. <laughs> no. I, I, you mentioned it once, and I do keep this in my mind as a weed whacking mechanism. And it, it, I do remind myself. And then all yeah, of a sudden. I just whack that one off right now. Exactly. Just right <laughs> now, just whack it off. It's true. And now I feel hungry. Like, I, I have. Okay, well, you can whack that off. <laughs> Never mind. I'm okay right now. I don't have to go to the refrigerator. Like I said, I've told you about that. Just one flash of a, of a picture of, a, of a, a refrigerator, and that brings on anxiety for some. So what was it that triggered your thought 
of hunger? That I can allow myself to think of something else. Well, the true thing is I haven't eaten today. Well, that's okay. That's not what the point is. You could say it's because I felt a sensation in the tummy and now okay. I'm listening. Oh, yeah, and now I'm listening. <laughs> See, you went to an explanation that was conceptualized. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, as if you, if, if I need an, a reason. You have to have a reason to feel hungry because you don't like hunger and you want to go take care of it. Yeah. Instead of just noting hunger, okay, hunger, never mind. And just continue breathing. Never mind. And just and continue breathing and let those feelings of hunger go by. They will. That a feeling of hunger is not a terrible thing. No, at some point, what? At what point can you allow yourself to eat <laughs> when you're? When the food is available. When the food is available. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That's actually part of the teaching of the Buddha. Okay, so what does it, how does it go? Uh, personally, I generally wait until somebody asks me if I'm hungry before I mention anything. That's how I generally handle it here. Oh, I like that. Okay. That I that I don't I don't listen to the grumblings of the stomach because I'm in charge of that. That in fact last night, uh, Tam went to sleep and when she woke up about twelve o'clock or so like that, uh, she just moved her position from being sideways on the bed to laying down, and I laid down also, and I didn't mention to it. And so this morning she said, are you hungry? And I said, no, not now. This is 10 a.m. And she says, but you didn't eat last night. And I says, yes, I know. Because I many times I only eat once a day. And if I'm hungry, okay, that's all right. She wants to sleep. So I'm not going to bother her to get up out of bed and go fix me something to eat just because I am hungry. I've been hungry before. I know what that's like. So you are not allowed to touch food yourself, correct? Is that the reason that you can? I got nothing to do with allowed. I don't have any bosses. Oh, but how about in I... Buddhism? Well, uh, actually, yes, that the monks do not receive raw food. They only receive basic food that people have cast out leftovers. That's what the monks eat. That's the tradition behind it. The going out on Vendabad is actually a, uh, a very formalized, noble, high-class way of doing garbage collection. Oh, I see. <laughs> but no, it's not that way. No, no, no. People get, get special food for, for the monks, and they prepare for, for them to, to, like, especially on several occasions. But that's only in the Western culture, where monks are scarce. No, no, no. In Myanmar, for example, no, they had people volunteering and specially cooking for them. Mm -hmm. and, but and, all of that is still volunteer. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's still all, it's still all volunteer. But if the monk goes out on Vendabat to the village, oh. Oh. 
always. In the mornings, that's what he's going to get is supper's leftovers. Mm-hmm. I know I've had half-eaten bananas and half-eaten fish put into my bowl. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. More than once, often, in fact. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I remember that fish. I resented the hell out of it that day. <laughs> <laughs> New monk. <laughs> oh, wow. That's that's quite an experience. <laughs> that's right. There is there, there's actually that a, a, a point that it can be made that's interesting. And the word that we use is lineage. Because there's issues about is it possible for the lay people who have not been ordained to have a lineage? The first part of the answer to that question is, is that a lot of monks don't have lineage. Mm-hmm. Because the lineage is actually that spark that comes with friendship and close association that I got from Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa and most specifically with Achan Po. That it's a connection. And that connection is the lineage where things are passed down from teacher to student and oftentimes it's done by the student being absolutely aghast in amazement at his uh, teacher standing there not doing anything. I remember one occasion very well because uh, I haven't seen them uh, for a while. They're very rare, but there is a kind of a yellow jacket or a wasp that is huge. It is so huge. Let me give you an example. Imagine a wasp that's so big that it's this big with wings. Wow. Mm-hmm. Almost an inch and a half, maybe two inches long. That's how big this thing is. And we saw one here on, in, uh, in the house. And it reminded me that the first time that I saw such a wasp here in the jungle was crawling across Achan Po's head. When <laughs> we were standing out in the woods together, And we were talking Dhamma, and one of these things lighted right on his head, and it crawled around for a while, getting my attention. And when it started to crawl down towards his left eye is when I raised my arm just a little bit, almost in the process of of starting to do something. He was waiting for me to do that, because all he did was take his left hand and just wave it about two inches or three inches, which gave me the clue that this is a show. Enjoy the show. I do not have to interfere with this show. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. All right, and then for the longest period of time, that, that bug stayed right there, almost down to his eyebrow on this part of his head, and then flew off. And he didn't move a muscle the whole time other than that one gesture of his left hand that was about two-inch raising. Um. Somebody else is calling. Yeah, somebody else is calling. Yeah. But we'll fin- we'll finish this and then I'll I'll talk to her. Yeah, I like I like it where we are and I feel much better already. Well, that's what we sell here, <laughs> free of charge. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's wonderful. This is the teaching of the Buddha. That's the thing that's so 
mind blowing is this whole idea of we don't have to listen to society. We can do our own drum. We can go our own way. We can do what we need to do to have the very best possible life. And we need to do it in such a way that there's absolutely no interference. But without wanting, right? This is where this is where it's tricky. We can go around the life just enjoying it without wanting. Without the let us know. say that the wanting that's done is wise wanting. Wise wanting. Wise wanting means that you want things that you know that you can get. And foolish wanting is wanting things that you can't have. Wow. So and every person it's personal what what they can get. Individual. This is something that you have to figure out for yourself. This is the teaching is that your wisdom has to be based upon your insights. And all I can do is kind of give you a verbal map or a concept that you've got to go travel the territory. I will get what I can get, huh? <laughs> That's very interesting. So in order to figure it out, you probably have to try a few things just to see. No, you don't you, have to try. You no. have to relax. You have uh -huh. to stop trying. <laughs> oh, wow, what a relief that is. I don't have to try anymore. <sighs> yes, it's it's like um, opening up. This is completely different book, not even a book, some kind of really uh, uh, man, another door <laughs> that was previously closed. <laughs> you have permission to open that door and be here now, because that's what's on the other side of the door is right here right now. And on this side of the door is an old pile of junk we call the human mind. Mm. Yeah. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna now relax. Excellent, go. excellent. All right. Well we'll finish this call and I'll talk to um uh Olivia. Okay. By the way, have you so um just to cover the basis of the the channel, so those videos that are not posted yet, they're not uh highlighted, um they are still being uh, in in a process, right? Being posted. Yeah. That, right. So right. So you don't. Yeah. If it has a, a draft, a yeah. edit draft on that, then don't bother with it until it's already posted. Got it. Then you okay. can go in and and make. But many of, them, in fact, it might be that there will be a mixture. That some of them will already have the uh, information done, and so you say, well, never mind. Parker's already done that. I'll go do one that hasn't been done yet. Yeah, yeah, that's what I keep. I keep looking at them and figuring out. Oh, that was done, and then. Thank you so much. That's such a yeah. nice thing. I feel like I'm always connected to you, and um, it like without calling you. But today, I really needed. I feel like I really needed your personal. Well, I'm glad that you did. I'm glad to see you. <laughs> I'm glad to see you too. I'm very grateful for you. I thank okay. you for being here. <laughs> see you later. Okay, bye bye. Bye-bye.